Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to God's Church, Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm glad you're here. It shows God that you chose to make Him important today. And if you're listening to me on SoundCloud or another internet application anywhere in the world, wherever you may be, good morning or good day to you too as well. May God richly bless you for seeking Him today. If this is your first time listening to me, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and listen to me from McKinney, Texas, USA, and this is Gospel Saving Church on our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Holy Word. All right, we always start with a word of prayer to ask God to help us understand His Word, amongst other things. So if you'd please join me in a word of prayer, I would surely appreciate it. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for giving us this new day. Thank you so much, Lord God, for giving me this new sermon, Lord, and Thank you so much, Lord God, for all your many blessings that you give each person on the face of the planet, Lord. Whether they believe in you or not, Lord, if we're alive, Lord, your, your power to keep us alive is flowing through our veins. And it's making our hearts beat, Lord. And it's making our lungs continue to breathe, Lord. And it's making the sun shine or, or at least the energy of the world keep on going, Lord. So thank you, Lord God. And we praise you, Lord God, for all these wonderful things. These basic things that we don't think about, Lord, but without the basic things... Nothing more would come. So, Lord, we just thank you for everything. We ask you to bless this service today, Lord. Bless my message. Help us to understand what you have to say to us today. And as I'm always big on, I'm going to pray again. Help us to not only to understand what you have to say to us and not just to understand what you have to say to us, Lord. Help us to make application in our lives, Lord, with the things that your word says to us today. Lord, for its it, wisdom is foolishness if not applied. Lord, we can know all everything in your word, Lord, but if we don't apply it, Lord, it's useless to us. It's foolishness to us. So again, help us to make application in our lives of the things that you tell us here in your word today. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So you can turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 now, if you would like to, for that's where we're going to be today. But I won't read them or teach them until my thoughts from last week's message. The sin, or there is sin not leading to death. That's the message I taught last week, and I just have a little overview about it, if this is your first time listening. Uh, Last week, John told us all about two types of sin. There's really only two types of sins, by the way, because John spoke about them. Sin that a Christian can commit that doesn't lead to death, or biblically speaking, that would be separation or hell, you know, because death is not the death of the body, but death of the soul, or another type of sin, the sin that can, that a Christian can commit, that does or can lead a Christian to death, or if they are saved, they can start committing this type of sin, and then they can walk away from Christ, and they can, you know, go off into destruction just like they were before they were saved. And I spoke to you about how this topic is one that the Bible doesn't speak about anywhere else, which I say today is pretty rare because usually the Bible comments on the Bible everywhere. There's just a few instances where God's Word doesn't really like, what, I've never heard that before, oh, that, that's only one time that that's mentioned. And also as part of the sermon, I gave you some of the different kinds of sin that categorize both the sin that leads a Christian to death and the sin that doesn't lead a Christian to death. But as I was writing this overview, God spoke to me about just two points that He wanted me to cover for this, for this, you know, short little, you know, kind of snippet of what we covered last week. Number one, as I was thinking about this, and I had a little conversation with somebody about this after the sermon last week, there really are differences in the kind of sin that we commit. There really are. 
There really is sin that leads to death, and there really is sin that doesn't lead to death. I mean, it's a very common thing to say in a Christian circle, all sin is the same. I have said that probably hundreds of times. All sin is the same in God's eyes, and that is true. To God, all sin is sin. Sin is sin. But there, there is sin, as John said. There's a little, you know, we have to break it down. There's sin that can lead somebody to separate them from God. And then there's sin that somebody can commit that doesn't really separate them from God. And then, remember, we could pray about one to give life, and we don't pray about the other one because, again, just because you stop sinning doesn't save you. It's repentance that brings you to salvation, which is a change of mind. So, uh, and this is all per context. John wrote this epistle to Christians, only to Christians. This is his main thrust to tell Christians what's going on, to get us in the know, you know. And so just keep that in mind. And if, if, you, if, you, have, if you disagree with me and what I said, go read the epistle for yourself and look at the context for yourself. John is the one that said it, not me. I just took his words and just simplified them and said, hey, here's what, here's what, here, here's what he's saying. I don't really don't you know, put too much into scripture. I just basically read it and then I explain it a little bit and then, you know, it is what it is, okay? Uh, point two, even though I gave those few examples of these two types of sin John wrote to us about, there is one common thing that categorizes both the types of sin. And it really isn't the type of sin that gets the category rather than the heart condition behind the sin that's being committed. The, the sin that's, okay, so first of all, the sin that a Christian can't commit that can or will lead them to the path of hell again is a heart condition when they're sinning. This child of God and his heart condition, the sin that's going to lead him to death, is a child of God that's really tired of living for God. He's tired of obeying the things that Jesus Christ taught his followers to do. And their hearts have become cold in their relationship. And in their love with God. And in their love for Jesus Christ. And that's why the sins that they're committing are leading them to death death or separation again. Their heart condition has fallen back into sin that their flesh loves so much. Or their heart condition is just of such that, hey, you know... I've been walking with God so long, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I sin. It doesn't matter what I do. God loves me, and that's just what I'm, because the Bible says so. And then that doesn't matter. And this is a real dangerous heart condition to have. This heart condition is one that, as we looked at Hebrews 10 last week, one that tramples the Son of God under the feet. One that counts His blood, the blood of the covenant, as common. Oh, you know, Jesus' blood is just going to cover everything I do. And this is a dangerous heart condition to have. There is sin leading to death, but then again, example two, there's sin not leading to death. And the same, I'll say, I'll say the same thing. Same goes for a Christian who will commit sin not leading them to death or hell. The reason this type of sin is not leading them to death is also because of their heart condition. In this condition, a Christian is going to commit sin. We know that. Christians sin just like everybody in the world, right? Everybody sins. But in the case of Christians committing sin that don't lead to death, uh, this is a heart condition of, uh, you know, earnestly, they're earnestly trying to follow Jesus Christ. They want to keep his ways. They're, they're striving to follow his commandments. They're, they're, they're working every day to obey his teachings and, and strive to abstain from a, a sinful lifestyle because they, they truly love God. And, and even though it's hard, 
you know, to love God because it means denying self, you know, picking up cross and following after Jesus. But that's the aim of their life. The aim of their life is Jesus perfection, I'm living for God, I'm having a relationship with God. That's the aim of their lives. Yet, the sin that doesn't lead to death would be, you know, their flesh is weak sometimes. Or, you know, they're ignorant in some sin. They're a new Christian and they don't know much, right? And they fall into sin sometimes, but it's, it's not mostly willful. But even if it is, they, they realize, oh man, I did that. And then afterwards, the Holy Spirit convicts them and they're like, oh wait, you know, I shouldn't have done that. God, please forgive me. And then they stop. But as a rule, this Christian's not trying to sin. They're not trying to live their lives for their flesh. Their goal and their heart condition is to love God and follow Christ and not sin because they know that sin displeases God. This Christian takes what John wrote in chapter 2, verse 1 of this epistle to heart. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. They know Sin is displeasing to God. God doesn't want me to sin. I'm going to strive not to sin, and I'm going to strive to follow Jesus Christ. Yet they may still fall. Hence the sin that doesn't lead to death. So what kind of heart-conditioned Christian are you? We each have to ask ourselves that. The one who tries to live for Christ, loving Him with all your heart, as the Bible says we should, striving to abstain from sin, for you know that God's will for your life is holiness, or not. Oh, you know, God loves me, so it doesn't matter how I live. I can sin or whatever. You know, hey, blood of Jesus Christ covers me. Hey, if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, right? That's a very common term I used to hear on the streets. As the folks that I talked to were drunk or high or, or you know, doing, you know, things that God hates. Oh, I just got to confess. Hey, guys, there's sin leading to death. And their sin not leading to death. Judge, Christian, please, your ways and hearts today to make sure you're not committing the sin leading to death. And if you find that you are, by what the Bible says, by what the things that I just said, then God wants you to repent. God wants you to stop that. He wants you to, he wants you to have a real relationship with Him because in a real relationship with God, you try to do the things that are pleasing to the one you're in a relationship with. If you're married to a wife or a husband, you don't purposely do things that they hate and expect to have a good relationship with them. So, in like manner, same if you really love God. If you really love God, show them that you love Him by your actions, not just your words. All right. Well, let's switch gears and get our new sermon for today, shall we? Title of the message today, In Him Who Is True. In Him Who Is True. Now, just FYI, these are our last four verses of this epistle. I don't actually know where I'm going to be next week because I spend all my time this week preparing for this message. So this is going to finish up the first epistle of John. This is our last four verses. So please pray for me that I would know where God wants me to go next week. Uh, If you will, please read with me. uh, 1 John 5, 18-21. We're going to read them now, and then I'm going to study them. So John says in his epistle, We read, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. 
in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So right off the bat there, John says something that can really be misunderstood. In fact, one of the very confusing topics in the Bible, I spoke about this back before in 1 John, actually chapter 1, but now he brings it up again. Uh, John says, first part of verse 18, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That other reference I was speaking about, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Is John telling us here that as a Christian, as a born-again person, that we can no longer sin ever again? It sure seems that way with those two different verse references, and I spoke about this again back in chapter 3, but he brings it up again. Truthfully, he can't be. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting himself and the Bible also as well. Look at what he says to born-again Christians in this same epistle just earlier in chapters 1 and 2. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, hey, he's saying that, hey, if you're a Christian and you say, I don't sin anymore, (laughs) I'm not a sinner, I don't sin anymore, he says we deceive ourselves, the truth is is not in us. And when the truth's not in you, that means that you're a liar. So pretty much, if you say, I am perfect, I love Jesus, and I'm perfect, and I have no sin, then God's calling you a liar right here, because you're a sinner, and that's just the way it is. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says this again, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. We just heard that one in our overview, right? Listen to what he says. And if anyone sins... And if anyone sins, well, here he just said that if we're born again, then we can't sin. So what, was he confused, maybe bipolar? He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And those are just a couple verses that he and the Bible also state that state that Christians will still sin even after they're born again, along with the fact that we have that if born-again people stop sinning and they never sin again, then nobody would be born again, for even the Bible records the original disciples, even after they're born again, still committing sin. Just a couple examples. Remember, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and it wasn't a past tense, and it wasn't a future tense. It was a present tense. Paul says, I am chief of of sinners. And he's not going to, is Paul a liar? I don't read, record in the Bible that Paul's a liar. Paul was a godly man, a very godly man, even before he was saved. And he was a godly man, super godly man, even after he was saved. So Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, which means that he still, he still knew he sinned even after he was saved. And Peter, in an instance where, you know, the new church was starting and, and all the disciples had gone out and made other disciples, but not only of Jews, but of Gentiles, as God opened the door for those that weren't Jewish to be saved, uh, Peter was uh, preaching to some Gentiles, and he would eat with them. But then when, the Jew, when some certain Jews came up, who in the Jewish religion and Judaism, Jews did not eat with the Gentiles. It was like forbidden. It was like an unholy thing to do. And Peter, in hypocrisy, which is sin, stopped eating with the Gentiles when the Jews came. And these two disciples are you know, two of the biggest disciples and the greatest disciples in all of the Bible. And yet they still sinned after they were saved. So yes, people will always sin. So here, as I said earlier in verse 18, John's either bipolar, out of his mind, 
or we are just not understanding what he's telling us here in this section where he's saying that, hey, when you're born again, you're not going to sin. Well, it's the latter. We are just misunderstanding what he's saying. The Bible never says anywhere that a born-again person stops sinning. Why then does John seem to be saying this? He simply says this because of the fact that after someone is cleansed from their sin, or once they become born again and saved, God sees them as sinless, like they have never sinned ever. John spoke of this in a unique way back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He says this, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Meaning, whoever abides or puts their trust in, surrenders their lives to, lives a surrendered life to, abide, hopes in, trusts in, puts their faith in Jesus Christ, does not sin. So if we're abiding in Christ, God sees us as sinless through the blood of Christ. A verse that embodies this or, or emulates this, 1 John 1, 7, all right out of 1 John. Again, so we're just not understanding what John's saying here because 1 John's in the same epistle. John's full of these same things. He says this, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and, and what does that mean? If we're walking in the light, if we're walking in truth, if we're walking in holiness, if we're walking in Christ-likeness, if we're walking abiding in Christ, trusting in Christ, following Christ, he says this, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So as we live abiding in Christ, God sees us born again as no longer sinners at all. In his eyes, there is a dual truth here. God sees you as sinless if you're saved and born again and walking in the light as he's in the light. But you may still sin, but through the blood of Christ, God sees you as sinless. One of those kind of confusing things of Christianity that you know people get confused about. I've had some discussions about that in the past with others who, who claim that after we become Christians, we no longer are sinners, and yet they don't know what to say on 1 John where he says, you know, if you say you have not sinned, you're a liar. Right? They don't, they don't, I don't understand. Yeah, it's kind of confusing, but you just got to know the Bible. So not only does God see the one who abides in Christ as sinless because of the blood of Christ, but John goes on to say, look at the rest of verse 18, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. What does that mean? He's saying that the wicked one doesn't you know, get at you anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't overcome you anymore. I'll explain as we go. But does it mean, when John says this here, that the wicked one doesn't touch us, that the wicked one can't send affliction, physical or spiritual, on us anymore? Is that what that means? Does, is John saying that the wicked one, the evil one, the devil can't spiritually attack us, causing crazy things and situations to happen around us? Does it mean that the devil can't assault or attack our minds, sending evil thoughts and contemplations into our thoughts so that even when we're trying to read God's word or pray, we can't concentrate? Is John saying maybe that, well, the wicked one, he can't affect us in any way in our spiritual or physical walks with God? Well, absolutely not. Unfortunately, he can do all these things I mentioned, and sadly, he does them well. The Bible records it. How can I say that after John said that a born-again person keeps himself and the wicked one doesn't touch him? 
we must be careful not to just go ahead and try to interpret the Bible on what we think. We have to go by what Scripture says. And Scripture speaks of Satan being able to spiritually and physically attack God's born-again children over and over and over. Plus, not only does the Bible speak about it, but I could give you a personal testimony. I could give you a personal testimony from people I know who have gotten spiritually attacked and been physically attacked by the devil. And it's just a common thing. Examples, just the one biggest one, of course, biblically, uh, in order to stop Paul from becoming a prideful or becoming prideful by the things that God had shown him, God allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet or afflict him by a thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And in verse 9, Paul calls this thorn in the flesh an infirmity, which means it was some type of illness or some type of sickness. And remember Job and the physical attacks God allowed Satan to afflict him with. This is a huge example. Now you may be, may be saying, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. Job was not a born-again person, and you're right. God did not allow people to be born again back then. The, the promise of the Holy Spirit only came after Jesus Christ died and resurrected, right? But look at what Satan says of Job in Job 1, 9 and 10, and look at the protection that God had on him yet. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? So yes, God protected Job, God protected Job kind of like a new covenant kind of protection, like Job was kind of protected, right? But still, Satan found a way to get in there, and he found a way to attack Job, and he attacked Job physically to the point where Job wished that he would die. Scabs from the head to his toe. He, he killed almost all of his family members. He, he afflicted me. All his friends turned away from him, even his own wife turned away from him. Why don't you just curse God and die, Job? And that all came from the hand of Satan. That all came from Satan's desire against Job to try to make him curse God. And yet Job did not do that. In the spiritual attacks category, Paul, Ephesians 6, 10 uh, 10 through 18, he says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Why? And he goes on to say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So even Paul knew the devil attacks Christians. What's a wile of the devil? Well, obviously it was something that Paul was, uh, you know, on telling these other Christians about because he was warning them, hey, put on your armor, Christians, and you can stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those don't sound very nice. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Then he goes on. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which which you'll be able to stand... Or, excuse me, which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. These are spiritual attacks, shots in your mind. Satan goes on and he shoots these darts at you. Oh, you're trying to get close to God? Choom. Oh yeah? Here, think about that. Woo, choom. I've been in church before, been listening to worship before, and just thinking about God solely, and then woo, all of a sudden a sexual thought flies through my mind. Now was I, was I in the mode to think something sexual? Absolutely not. Where did that thought come from? Well, it was a 
fiery dart of the wicked one. That's why he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is a spiritual war we are in, and Satan attacks and he attacks well. He can attack you physically, and he can attack you mentally, and he can attack you spiritually. 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are sufferings, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. What is Peter talking about? Uh, Satan, he's a roaring lion. He walks around trying to devour people, trying to get people to walk away from Christ, right? And what does he do? He's causing suffering. So yes, Satan causes many afflictions upon many people. He's caused many afflictions on my body many times, as well as often, even on a daily basis, shoots evil and terrible thoughts into my mind when I'm praying or reading God's word. And he especially attacks me with with things I have to do or thoughts of this or thoughts of that when I'm preparing for this Sunday's message, which I do on an everyday basis. He also brings forth spiritual attacks on my family to cause divisions, tries to cause problems between me and my wife, etc. And the list could go on and on and on and on and on. So if all this is true, because the Bible speaks about it, what is John talking about in this verse? That a born-again Christian keeps themselves and the wicked one does not touch them. Well, since the devil can and does spiritually and physically attack Christians... What does the Bible say he cannot do? There's a bigger question. What does the Bible say that Satan cannot attack you with? What does the Bible say Satan cannot touch you with? Well, the Bible is very clear. He can't, after you're saved, come into, inhabit, or possess you after God's Holy Spirit is living within you once you're born again. He can take over people of the world, and he does possess and inhabit and lead the people of the world, as we'll get to here pretty soon, but he cannot come in you. The Bible says once a person is born again, they are saved and sealed by God's Holy Spirit that comes and lives within them, Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 1.22 and Ephesians 1.13. So after salvation, God's Holy Spirit is the only one that can be within you. The devil cannot touch you in that way. He cannot come inside of you. That's what, Paul, or that's what John's saying here. As a result of this being born again and having God's Holy Spirit live within us and the lost not having God's Holy Spirit living within them, look at verse 19 is what I was just saying, that Satan can lead those that are not saved, right? John says this, we know that we are of God, speaking, okay, Christians. Remember I told you the Bible's written to Christians, or this epistle's written to Christians. We know that we are of God, speaking to the saved, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So here we go. Here's where Satan cannot touch us. He can't come into us. He can't inhabit us. He can't make us go one way or the other. There's really no nice way to put this, ladies and gentlemen. John just said that anyone that's not saved or born again, not having God's Holy Spirit living within them, is under the control or sway or power of the devil. In other words, you can look at it like this. If you're not saved and you're lost or you're not of God or let's say you've walked away from God and yet even though Satan can't come inside of you then, he can sure start leading you then. You are like the devil's puppet. You do what he wants. 
You do what he wants, when he wants you to do it. You are like, you are basically his personal slave. That's what John just said here. And he said, obviously, that there's Christians that are away from that, but then there's the whole world, meaning all those that aren't saved in the world, which is a huge majority, are under the sway or power of the devil. God speaking to Paul in Acts 26, 17, and 18 says this, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes, listen, in order to turn them from the darkness to light. What is that darkness? Well, that's the darkness of the devil. And from the power of Satan to God. Again, the lost are under the power of the devil while the saved are not. For the redeemed, as I said, it's a different story. There's no longer... Uh, any controlling factor of Satan on them. Nor are can we, Bible also says, we can't be slaves of sin. Jesus said, John 16, 13, uh, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, meaning when he's come to you, when he's come inside of you, he will guide you in all truth. And a result of, of having his Holy Spirit living within us and being born again to Christians, Jesus says, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Will we always make the right choices of our flesh or of our conscience or if the devil tries to tempt us or bait us? No, but he can't come within us and he can't control us. As Christians, we have the right to know, hey, I don't have to do that. We have a choice whether we can sin or not. The lost, those that are not born again, they have no choice. Again, just as a puppet hangs from the strings, a puppet cannot do anything that their master says that they cannot do. Same way with a lost person. They cannot do anything unless their master, the devil, which they're under the sway of the devil, whatever he says do, boom, they do it. They don't even think twice about it. They're just lost in sin. Also, Romans 6 speaks of how Christians aren't slaves to sin anymore. So if saved... If you're filled with God's Holy Spirit, you are not Satan's puppet and you're not led by him, but you're led by the Holy Spirit's truths and you're no longer a slave to sin. That's more good news for those that are born again. And on that note, along, with those, along those same lines, look what John says to us in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him is true, speaking to Christians. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. There's three statements that John just made here. First, to all humanity. He's, he said this statement speaking of all people. He said this first here. Jesus Christ has come and given mankind the understanding so that people may know him who is true. That means that, well, Jesus said it in, in the Gospel of John. He said, I will be lifted up. And I will draw all men or all peoples to myself. So when Christ came, he gave out, kind of in a sense, he poured on the whole earth the ability, the knowledge of himself, which God also speaks to us in Romans 1 that he did from the creation. God is, is known to all creation, even his triune Godhead. So all creation is without excuse. But here, Jesus is being a little bit more specific. He came that he may give understanding so that people may know him who is true. That's the ability to know him. And everybody on the planet Earth has the ability to know Jesus Christ. If you, in a sense, let's say, uh, with your common knowledge 
of, yes, there's a creator, and you accept that, and you don't reject that. When you look out at all creation, when you look at the wonders of the human body, and you go, you know what, there's got to be a creator, but, but who is he? Who is he? And then you, let's say you're lost, and let's say you, you, know, you, don't, you don't know which way to go, but you go, but God, I really want to know who you are. I want to know who you are. Boom, he'll come to you, and he'll help you understand who Jesus Christ is, and he'll help you come to salvation. And this is something that Jesus did when he came. The second statement here that Jesus says, or that Paul John says about Jesus, he says, we are in him, meaning God, who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. After somebody comes to know who Jesus is, more than just a mental knowledge, but you know, they come to an intimate knowledge of who Jesus is, then we come and we're like in, we're, we're considered kind of the body, the, the, the kind of the, the, in the sphere of God now. We're kind of, we become in God, in Christ Jesus, his son, who is the, 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 state, the third statement here, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is God, but he's also, he represents, he is, and within him is eternal life. Jesus is God, and Jesus is eternal life. Before Jesus Christ came, there was no eternal life. The best people could have was Abraham's bosom, right? And then people weren't there uh, to be in heaven with God. That was just like a temporary holding place until Christ came. So in Christ, the eternal God is eternal life. Second Peter 3.9 says that God desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance or to be saved and go to heaven. And because of God's desire that everyone gets saved, he sent Jesus Christ into the world and not without the proof or knowledge of his coming and who he is. Because as John just said here, Jesus Christ is eternal life or eternal life is in him alone. And we know that. John says, the gospel, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And we know God's desire from 2 Peter 3 is that everyone be in Christ. Everyone come to abide in Christ. Everyone come to be saved, and no one is lost. That's God's desire, that no one be lost. God is so loving. And he's so kind. God is love, absolutely. And that's what the Bible says. And last verse, John closes with a final word to God's kids that are in him, that are abiding in him, who is true. Read verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So he just closes here. God's God's desire for you, he's telling you as a Christian, and him who is true is that you stay away from idols because this is sin and not befitting the one who is in him who is true true. Remember the first two commandments God gave in Exodus 23 through 4, which were for the Jews, but now of course we know God wants his children to obey his commands because we were adopted in, right? He said this, chapter 20, Exodus 3 and 4, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no gods for yourself. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. Uh, then he gives us what it means to keep ourselves from idols and not have any other gods before him. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. And why does God tell his children these things? Rest of verse 5, for I, am the, for I the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, an idol is anything that you serve or bow down to, Christian. 
And God says to those who are in him, who is true, that you are not to serve anything or anyone but him. For he wants all of you. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want to share you. He doesn't want you to have another God. He doesn't want you to serve anything else. He wants you to love and serve him. For he loved and served you, and he still does every day. He loves us and he serves us actually every day. Many Christians in ignorance serve things and have many idols, actually, but they just don't know it and they do it in ignorance, and that's probably why John closes this letter the way he does. Remember, God's Holy Spirit's trying to lead Christians in God's truths, and this is a huge truth of God. He wants you to be only living your life for Him. He wants you to only be serving Him in your life, and He doesn't want you to serve anything else in your life. So Christians, just a heads up, FYI, Check and examine your life and your ways. Think about this. Think of any addictions you may have or anything you serve or spend your time doing with an obsession. Obviously, we all have to do things in order to keep our lives running. We have to go to work. We have to do car maintenance. We have to do housemen. We have to do things. But what do you do, think about it, with an obsession? Something you can't do without. Just be, you're just drawn to it and you just have no control, it seems like, and you just, you just have to do it. Well, that's... An addiction, and the Bible would call that an idol because you struggle with it and because you're just kind of like that's you have to do it. It's almost like you're shackled to it. So God doesn't want that for you because that thing would be called an idol. Plain and simple, if you serve anything obsessively and unrelentingly, then this is an idol and God wants you to repent of this and serve him only. For he wants all of you, uh, for you who are in him, he is true. He paid for you by the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ. So we covered a few topics today, but the one I want to close with is the title of the message, In Him Who Is True. John speaking to Christians that he was writing to this epistle to, verse 19, he says this, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But I want you to think about this. Think about this. What he just said is, True Christians are led by God, by God's Holy Spirit, but the whole world, meaning a large majority of the world, is under the sway of the wicked one. But I want you to think about this statistic that I've come along in my years of preaching now. 75 to 85% of all Americans, which is a large majority, believe themselves to be born again and saved. They believe themselves saved and headed for heaven when they die, and in him who is true. And yet, here though the problem is, this is the very opposite of the majority, as John said in verse 19. John, uh, Jesus Christ also said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, which should be the way to heaven, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So we have few going into heaven, and many going to hell. He goes on to say, verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. So hard it is to get to heaven, but really easy to go to hell. And he says of the whole thing, he just you know, wraps it all up at the very end. He says, and there are few who find it. So there are few who find eternal life, and many who will go the way of destruction. And yet, in America, we see the many believing that they're on their way to heaven, and the few, what they say, according to the statistics and the polls, are actually going to hell, which is opposite, turned upside down, of what Jesus Christ said. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, who, who's right? God or us? My, my point is this. Many believe themselves to be God's kids and in Him who is true, but they are not. And they're deceived into thinking that they are. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. That means only if you live a lifestyle of doing God's will shall you enter the kingdom of heaven. But yet, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, people are still calling him Lord, but they're not going to make it because only those that do the will of God shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So my challenge to you today, to who you who are listening to me out there, wherever you are in the whole world, whatever you think about yourself, but especially I challenge you if you would consider yourself a Christian, are you in him who is true, or are you under the sway of the wicked one, as most of the people of the world are, according to John here in verse 19, and according to Jesus Christ in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where many will go the path of destruction, while few will actually make eternal life. I want to ask you, if you believe yourself to be saved, how do you know? How do you know you are truly abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ or aren't you abiding in Christ? Because remember what the Bible said to us today. If we're in the light as he is in the light, meaning that we're abiding in him, we're trusting in him, we're living for him, we're, we're hoping in him, we're, we're serving him, then we're abiding in him. Then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, covers us from all unrighteousness. Of course, this would be after salvation, not to be saved, of course. And remember what it means to abide in Christ. Are you abiding in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Matthew 16, 24 and 25. You start there and you finish there. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means put off himself. Stop being the Lord of his life. Deny himself. Then let him take up his cross. And then follow after me, Jesus said. So stop living, stop being the Lord of your life, repent, pick up the cross, and then follow Jesus. Make a decision to follow Jesus Christ and what he said to do and how he said to live. He, he kind of ties it all together at the end, verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you want to be the Lord of your life, then you'll rule your life now. You'll be the captain of your ship. You'll be the one in the driver's seat. You'll live your life for you. You'll run your own boat. That's, that's just the way it'll be. But, but he's, and, and then he says that you'll lose your life, meaning you'll lose your eternal, eternal life if you want to do that. But whoever loses my, his life for my sake will find it. Whoever surrenders, whoever decides to put their faith and trust in Christ, Whoever turns their heart to the Lord and lives for Him, puts their trust in Him, and then decides to obey Him, this one, if they do it for His sake, shall find His life, is what Jesus Christ just said. And of course, if you are saved, then your lives should be moving towards what John said in this epistle, uh, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says this, He who says he abides in him also ought himself to walk just as Jesus 
walked. And that means you're, you're walking in God's holiness if you're truly saved. You're walking in God's light. You're walking in God's love. You're following in the footsteps of Christ as a lifestyle. And that's what it means to walk in the light, to live, to abide in Christ. Are you there? Please examine your life today, people, and ask yourself, am I in him who is true? Striving daily to abide in Christ, following him, trusting in him, and everything that I do and everything that I am? Or am I living for myself, living in my sinful ways, living for my sinful flesh? Am I the captain of my own ship? You don't want to end up like those in Matthew chapter 7 who were deceived even unto death and then after death, who when they came to Jesus and they called him Lord, Lord, yet they did not abide in him who was true or who is true. And then he said to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can't say you know Jesus Christ and live and practice in any sin that you want and still be okay with God. You have to abide in Him. Your life has to be surrendered to Him and you have to be following Him. This is what you want. A real relationship where you strive to make Him happy. This is a real relationship. The relationship comes first and then you strive to make Him happy afterwards. Is this yourself? I would hate to have you listen to me and not know this truth, because this is the, one of the biggest things that God's given me to preach in my ministry for Him in the last 17 years that I've known Christ, since I was an atheist, and God brought me to know Christ, and I had no idea what was going on in the Christian church, because I wouldn't have anything to do with it, because I was an atheist. And this is one thing that God has shown me. Are you in Him who is true? Judge yourselves by the Word of God, not by how you may feel or some actions you may have taken in the far past sometime, whatever. Are you in Him who is true or are you not? If you realize that you're not and you're sitting there and you're going, you know, I, wow, I don't, I didn't know all that. I didn't know I had to surrender to Jesus Christ. I didn't know that He had to be the Lord of my life. I didn't, I didn't know that my, that you know, I really had to surrender to him. I really had to turn my heart to him. I just thought I just prayed this prayer. Oh my gosh. And, and you know, and I look at my life. No, I just live for me. I do the things I want. Well, if you realize that's you today, what must you do? Because I'm going to tell you that you're not saved. If you're living for yourself. You're not living for Christ. And you're not surrendered. You don't have a relationship. You're not saved. That's what the Bible says, not me. So what must you do? Well, you must repent. I don't care what you think you've done or whatever, you must repent. And you must realize that you're not okay with God. And that He wants you to turn your heart to Christ now. The Bible says if you turn your heart to Christ, God will turn His face towards you and He'll bring you to Himself. If you just turn your heart to Jesus Christ now and you surrender to Him, Jesus, I need you. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do what I did. I'm so sorry. I, 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 I thought I was saved. That, that preacher said all I had to do was pray this prayer. But, but now this, this, while the Bible says that I must lose my life for your sake, I, I'm so sorry, Lord Jesus. I want to lose my life for your sake right now. And surrender and come. Fall on your knees or in your heart if you can't fall on your knees and turn your heart to the Lord and surrender. And give him your life and ask him to be born again. And then the Bible says, if you truly turn your heart to the Lord, that he will save you. Please do.
and do soon. God loves you and gave everything to win you and to save you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your light that you give. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. which Your word is so precious and so powerful and so pure and so holy. Lord, I just ask, Lord God, that your word would, would just break through to whoever listened to it right now, Lord God in heaven. And I pray, dear God, that you would lead them right now to the cross. Lead them right now, Lord God, as they turn their heart to you, Lord God, as they, as they cry out to you in repentance. Lord God, that you would see that true act of repentance and that you would come to them and you'd visit them and you'd put your Holy Spirit in them and make them born again because you know that they mean it and that they're really tired of living for sin and they're really tired of living for self and they really need Jesus. Please, dear God, draw them to yourself. Please, God, bring everyone to the cross that's not there right now already. Whether it's not today, then tomorrow. Then tomorrow, the next day. And Lord, I pray that they'd never forget this message and these words that were spoken by you, Lord, for the rest of their lives until they're yours. Till they surrender. Till they come to the foot of the cross. And they lay down and they say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you, Lord God. And we love you and praise you. And I ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.